If you would open up your Bibles, please, to Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Parallel passages are found in Matthew 8, verses 28 to 34, and Luke 8, verses 26 to 39. I really wish we had time to read all three of those passages on this subject of healing the humanized demoniac. All right, the uh, fifth chapter of Mark has often been referred to as the Bible chapter for incurables. Because in it, we see Jesus meet with three impossible, from man's perspective, three impossible human conditions. He met a dangerously deranged demoniac who would today be confined to a mental institution. He is the one we will be looking at in this morning's lesson. He also, in this chapter, we will look at, Lord willing, next week, met a disabled woman who no amount of money spent on physicians and looking for a cure. No one was able to cure her. And then he met a dead young girl, who obviously in any century would just have, you know, be taken to the cemetery for burial. So we're going to be looking at one who is deranged, one who was disabled, and one who is, was dead. And there was no human help for these three incurable cases in the first century. And really... There is no lasting help for such similar cases today. They would either be institutionalized, hospitalized, or cemeterized, if there is such a word. (laughs) However, where the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned, there are no incurable or impossible cases. For him, all things are possible. For the demoniac or the mentally deranged, he is the great physician of the mind and of the spirit For the diseased, he is the great physician of the body. And for the the dead, he is the great physician of the soul. Jesus Christ, so therefore Jesus Christ, demonstrates once again through these three miracles, Mark chapter 5, that he is indeed the great physician of the whole man. In these three incurables, we see that he is the uh, great physician of those who are spiritually hopeless, which all of us were before the Lord Jesus Christ saved us. He is the great physician of those who are physically hopeless, and he is the great physician of those who are all headed toward death, which we all are, are we not? Both physically and spiritually, except for when he saves us spiritually. And if the rapture happens, we don't even have to die physically, do we? All right, as we consider each of these three miracles... The first this morning, and then I don't know if I'll actually get the next two in one lesson or not, because each of them really should be a lesson in themselves, and I don't know how 14 years ago I put them together, but we'll see, because we're going to be talking about the disgraceful daughter and the dead daughter. One had an issue of blood for 12 years, and one was 12 years old when she died. And so I don't know if I'll get those in one lesson next week on the Great Physician Part 2 or if we'll have a Great Physician Part 3, which may be the case. But anyway, uh, we will see in each case that there are three forces at work. There is the work of Satan and sin, which, of course, Satan introduced in the first place to this world. Then we will be looking at the work of society. And then the third force which is really a person, is the work of the Savior. So there are the wiles of the devil, the worries of the world, and the wonders of the Savior. As we look at each of these three next chronological miracles in our Lord's earthly life, we're going to consider what Satan and sin does for man, 
particularly as we look at this deranged ammoniac. Then we're going to see what society can do for each of these cases, which are considered incurable from human perspective. And that's not much, what society can offer, just sort of a little Band-Aid. And then, of course, we'll see what the Savior can do for them. So let's look now at Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter, or not the whole chapter, but verses 1 to 20, the whole um, event of the healing of the dehumanized demoniac. And as I do this, I hope it doesn't offend you, but I am going to interject what the other parallel passages also have to say, to add to what Mark wrote. And um, that way we won't read the other passages, but I'll just give to you the additional things that aren't contained in Mark's account. So let's look at Mark 5, starting at verse 1. Remember, of course, now they have just crossed the Sea of Galilee and gone through a terrible storm. And it says in verse 1, And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he, speaking of Jesus, was come out of the ship... Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And this, by the way, is the same busy day. Can you believe it? I mean, they crossed the storm. Remember, that was the end of the busy day. Instead of going to bed, he said, let's go over to the other side. So they crossed the storm, had that, I mean, the sea, and had that terrible storm that hit them. As soon as they get to the other side, now, have they had time to sleep? Jesus had a little bit of a short rest on the boat. It didn't last for very long. But as soon as they got to the other shore, this demoniac, we are told, approached them. So it's the same busy day. And it says uh, over in Luke's account that this man had an unclean spirit for a long time. That is found in Luke 8.27. All right, so immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwellings among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Do demons give people supernatural strength? They do. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Now, over in Matthew's account, it says, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Because we will find out shortly in Matthew's account, there really were two demoniacs. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And the we could also have been the demons speaking within the man, which I guess they probably were. All right, he says, uh, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, our Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. And over in Matthew 8:29, it says, They also said, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Verse 8, for he said unto him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he, meaning Jesus, asked him, what is thy name? And of course, here Jesus is speaking to who? It gets really confusing, but he's really speaking to the demon. 
And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many, not just one demon, many demons. And he besought him much, this is the demon beseeching Jesus much, that he would not send them away out of the country. And over in Luke, it says, or into the deep, which is speaking of the bottomless pit or the abyss. Now, that's prayer number one in this lesson. The demons are beseeching Jesus to not send them out of the country of the Gadarenes or to torment them ahead of time by sending them into the abyss. They're really beseeching Jesus in a, you know, what we could call a prayer. Now, verse 11 says, now there, were, now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. It says in Matthew 8.32, he said, Go. And the unclean spirits went out. In other words, they went out of the two demoniacs and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000, 2,000 pigs or hogs, and were choked in the sea. They perished, they drowned in the sea. Verse 14, And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus. Now, over in Matthew's account, it tells us the whole city came out to Jesus to see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. And they saw him sitting. And over in Luke's account, it tells us he was sitting at Jesus's feet and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Elsewhere, it says they had great fear. Who were they afraid of? Jesus. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. So the witnesses told all that they had seen that had happened. Verse 17, this is prayer number two. And they, this is the whole city, the people of the the Gadarenes, they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Prayer number two. And when he was come into the ship, that's Jesus. In other words, he answered their prayer. They didn't want him, so he was going to leave. When he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Prayer number three is from the demoniac. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, that's the demoniac, former demoniac, he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Okay, after calming the storm, we are told that Jesus and his disciples arrived on the other side of the, of the Lake of Galilee in an area which Mark and Luke, and I think I have this wrong, I think I have this switched in your books, but Mark and Luke refer to this area as the Gadarenes. Uh, Look at Luke 8.26, for example, and then you can see in verse 1 of Mark 5 that they refer to this area as the Gadarenes. Over in Matthew's account of this same story, 
we are told that Jesus came into the country of the Gergesenes. That's in Matthew 8.28. Now, because of this, some have thought that this is a contradiction within the scripture. But, of course, you know it isn't. You know that by now, right? There are no contradictions in scripture. But the critics like to point out things like this. As with all supposed contradictions in the scripture, this one can be very easily explained with a little research into geography and with a little help from archaeology. Actually, both terms are correct. Either the Gadarenes or the, or the Gergesenes are correct because Gadara was the name of the chief city in the territory of the Gergesenes. So it would be like, you know, I say I'm from Chicago but that's the chief city in Illinois. I'm also from Illinois. I mean, it's no big deal. Gadara was the chief city, so they would say it's the area of the Gadarenes, the people from Gadara. But it was really in the country of the Ger- of Gergesa, <laughs> however you would say it. But Gadara itself, the, the chief city, the city of Gadara, was located too far inland for it to match up with the description that is given to us in, of the city in this account. However, they have found that a little town by the name of Gerasa or Gergesa was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, six miles, which is interesting, six miles across from the city of Capernaum. Remember, he got on in the, into the ship in Capernaum, and they headed over to this little town of Gergesa, six-mile trip across that lake. Which is interesting since we said that that voyage was like the voyage of life. And man's number is six. It was exactly six miles from Capernaum to Gergesa. Anyway, that little town of Gergesa fits the setting because it has slopes that come, they descend swiftly down into the sea. And we know in this account that the pigs ran off of a slope and fell down into the sea. Also, it fits the account because in this ancient city are found many tombs on the hills that surround the ruins of uh, the ruins of Gerasa. So it fits the description that we find, uh, you know, as the demoniacs here were living in the tombs. Well, after their encounter with the fury and the frenzy of the satanically induced storm, the last thing that the disciples would have hoped to meet. You know, I'm sure they were really looking forward to some rest, especially after that horrible storm and the fear that they had been through and the, just the weariness of going through that storm and trying to bail out all the water. And, you know, when you're scared, it really tires you out. And it had been a busy day anyway. So the last thing they would have hoped to have meet would be the fury and the frenzy of a demoniac. <laughs> but that is exact, and a nude one, too. <laughs> Actually, two. But that's exactly what happened. (laughs) The Lord was going to show them. Remember now, his emphasis is on teaching them, teaching his men. He was going to show them that he not only had authority over what Satan could stir up in the natural elements, but he also had authority over what Satan could stir up within man as well. So his whole purpose, besides, his whole purpose really was teaching his men some lessons on faith. Now, they hadn't done too well in the first lesson had they the storm they didn't do too well he said you know you have no faith little faith what's the matter with you guys but after after the storm their faith had stretched now he's going to give them another test on faith but his whole purpose for crossing the sea besides teaching them lessons on faith was to deliver this demoniac he had a divine appointment 
with this man, actually with these two men. And we know this because it's the only thing he does while he's over there. This is all he does while he's in Gerasa. Once this demoniac is delivered and discipled for a short bit of time at the, at the Lord's feet, we find that Jesus crossed right back over to C- Capernaum. And part of the reason for that is why. The Gadarenes didn't want him. They, beseeched, they besought him to leave. But anyway, that's the only thing he did. So that was his whole purpose for going over that there. So he had a divine appointment with this man, and he also had a divinely purposed ministry for this man, as we will also see. So as the Lord and his men emerged from the boat, tired and weary, and in great reverential fear of Jesus now, remember they said, what manner of man is this who could calm the, the storm and the sea with just the word of his mouth? So they're in great reverential fear of him. They immediately are met, actually, as I said, by two men. And if you want to see that, it's over in Matthew 8, 28. And uh, both of these men were possessed with demons. Now, it's interesting that Mark and Luke center only on one of them. So from here on in, that's exactly what I am going to do, because it gets too confusing to keep talking about both of them. And uh, so we're going to focus just on on the main demoniac, And let the other go. But remember in the back of your mind that he is there too. I do not think that, I think he was healed and went on his way. I do not think that he actually sat at the feet of Jesus and wanted to follow him. And so that's why the focus is on the the one. And also it's interesting that Matthew is the only one who mentions two demoniacs. Elsewhere, when we come in the future to the healing of of, uh, Bartimaeus, who was a blind man, We'll find out that the focus of Mark and Luke is on just Bartimaeus. But Matthew says there were actually two blind men who were healed. Now, Matthew, it's interesting that in both cases, Matthew refers to the two. Remember, Matthew was written to the Jews. And for the Jews, it was very important that a witness be established by how many? Two. So, man, yeah, the light bulb comes on. So Matthew always tells us about the two. That would be very important for the Jewish people to know that there was a witness of two. All right. <clears throat> so we're going to focus just on the main one. By piecing together all three of the gospel accounts, however, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke concerning this event, we have a very vivid description of what Satan and sin makes of men when they permit themselves to be controlled by sin. I had a piece of paper up here. Okay. We are told that this one man in particular was exceeding fierce and that no man could pass by. They wouldn't let anybody pass by. And that tells us about the danger of sin. Sin is dangerous. People who are possessed by Satan and full of sin are dangerous to their communities, aren't they? Definitely. That tells us about the danger of sin. He was so fierce that nobody would even dare to pass by his way. Luke tells us that he had not worn any clothes for a long time. And that tells us about, um, let me see here, I've got it. Also, it says that he was possessed by devils a long time. That tells us about the uh, duration of sin. Has sin been around a long time? Since the very beginning, when man fell. It also tells us about the dress of sin. The dress of sin. We're all, remember what happened as soon as Adam and Eve sinned? They knew they were 
naked. Sin never improves the dress of man. But it's interesting, once somebody accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, do you notice a change in the, in the dress? Yes, you do. Skimpiness in dress usually hints at sin, doesn't it? All right, then we are also told that he did not live in any house. That tells us about the um, disruption of sin on the home. Does sin disrupt the home, cause divorce and all kinds of awful things within the home? He, he had had a home. We know that because Jesus at the end tells him to go to his home. But he, was, he, he disrupted his home. I don't know if he was a son or a father or what, but there was a disruption in the home. It also tells us that he lived in the tombs, and that tells us about the, not only the defilement of sin, and he was, he was possessed by unclean spirits, so that speaks of defilement, the defilement of sin, but it also tells us about the dwelling of sin. He wanted to, he, because of the demons possessing him, he, he wanted to live among the dead. He lived in, among the, the, in the tombs. And that's how um, sin is. You know, when, before we're saved, we're all dead in our sins. So it tells us about the dwelling of sin, the defilement of sin. It says that he had been seized and kept under guard and bound with chains and fetters. Uh, but his strength was such that he was able to break his bonds. Well, that not only tells us about the defiance of sin, but it also tells us about the dynamy or the dynamite, the power of sin. The sin has a power to wreck and destroy, doesn't it? It says, no man had strength to tame him. I've got notes all over the place, so try to be patient with me. I'm trying to do all these Ds. All right, no one could tame him. That talks about the power of sin, the, the defiance of sin, and the destruction of sin. And then it says that he was, uh, he was always night and day in the tombs and in the mountains, crying out and cutting himself with stones. That speaks of the discontent of sin. Was this a contented man? Not by any stretch of the imagination. Always, day and night, he's in the tombs and he's in the mountains and he has no rest, no peace. Uh, And he's crying out. And in the Greek, that speaks of shrieking and uh, wailing and even croaking sin is and it's loud elsewhere in one of the other accounts it says with a loud voice sin is loud you ever notice this about the world's kind of music is it soft no it's anything but loud loud so this talks about the decibels of sin it says in Amos 5.23, take away from me the noise of thy songs. <laughs> don't, you, don't you feel that way when you hear these the rock concerts and the guys that pull up to you next to you in a, at a stoplight and, you know, it's, the whole car is vibrating and so are your windows. And mm, Please, do remember that. Amos 5.23, take away from me the noise of thy songs. Please give me soft music. You know, they've done studies with plants. And this is true for children. If you have children in the home, it is much more conducive to a, to a calming atmosphere and to a growing, nurturing atmosphere to have godly, soft music playing in the home. The plants that were in with the rock music withered and died, even though they had the same sunlight, the same amount of water, the same amount of soil, everything was the same. 
but they withered and died. The, the plants that were in the room with the good music, they thrived. That's the same thing with your spirit and soul and your children. So have good music playing in your home. All right, and they were cutting themselves with stones. That talks about the um, disfiguring of sin. This, all this pier, body piercing and tattooing that's going on. It's all from paganism. But, you know, the prophets of Baal, they were the ones who cut themselves. This is self-mutilation. speaks of the disfiguring of sin. Satan wants man to harm himself. You know, go to some of the pagan tribes in other countries, you know, where they, they do all kinds of crazy things to their bodies. They put plates in their lips to make big lips. They put rings around their necks. They deform themselves. Hang things from their earlobe. Oops. <laughs> big, heavy things, you know, so their earlobes. <laughs> and then Luke adds, well, we'll change that subject real quick. Uh, Luke adds that the demons within the man had also driven him out into the wilderness. That speaks about the uh, barrenness, the emptiness of sin. I wanted to read something here, let's see, from John Butler about driving. It says, uh, the demoniacs were driven of the devil into the wilderness. That's, by the way, in Luke 8, 29. This is not freedom. People think the Christian is shackled and cannot have any fun, while the sinner is the one who has freedom. Not hardly. The sinner is driven by the devil. And where? Into barren places, into the wilderness. This is the driving of slavery, of addiction, and it is unmerciful driving. So that speaks of the the driving of the devil of sin. All of these are the demons of sin. And are there many? Are there a legion? Yes, there are a legion of... uh, of demons of sin. So we've had the danger of sin, the dress of sin, the duration of sin, the disruption of sin on the home, the dwelling place of sin among the dead, the defilement of sin, the dynamy or the power of sin, the defiance of sin, the destruction of sin, the discontent of sin, the disfiguring of sin, the decibels, the loudness of sin, the discomfort of sin. And what about the dementia of sin? Later on, after this man was exercised of the demons, it says he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, what? In his right mind. So obviously before, he was not in his right mind. He was crazy. Anybody could look at him and see he was crazy. So it talks about the dementia of sin. And as we look at the conversation the demons have with Jesus, we're going to look at the disrespect of sin and the dread of sin, which is judgment, and the destiny of sin, which is the deep or the abyss. So all those demons of sin. And actually, this demoniac pictures all of us before salvation because all of us are naked before God, unclothed in his righteousness before our salvation. We all live in tombs because we're dead in our sins. We live among a world of dead people, spiritually dead people, and we're all in bondage to our sin. And we're all untamable apart from Jesus Christ, aren't we? Our hearts are dis- desperately wicked and you know, deceitful, and no one can tame the human tongue. All right, we do not know how the demons entered into this man and took control of him, but it was obviously due to his yielding to sin of some kind. Whatever that sin was, it was particularly evil because this man had a legion of demons within him. He had probably messed around with the occult or something or worshipped an an idol 
Or how can people get into demon possession today, open themselves up for demon possession? They can get into the occult, they can get into witchcraft, they can get into astrology or fortune-telling or hard rock music, drugs, heavy drinking. They can get into pornography and lusts of all different kinds. They're opening themselves up for demon possession. Now, a legion referred to a very large Roman contingent of of soldiers, anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000. Every commentator had a different figure, but most of them were around five or 6,000. That's a lot of demons, isn't it? I, I wouldn't even want one. But to have, and remember when he healed Mary Magdalene? She had how many? She had seven. This guy had a legion, a lot, maybe perhaps as many as 6,000. So a great contingent of Satan's demonic soldiers were marching around within this man's spirit, driving him absolutely wild to the point of sadistically harming himself. And that's what demons will attempt to do. They'll attempt to get a person to finally um, harm himself to the point where he commits suicide. He kills himself. He was totally conquered by the powers of sin and darkness. It tells us in John 10.10 that Satan is a thief. And his ultimate purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy men. When this man yielded to sin, Satan's demons came in as thieves. And they stole away everything that the man had. He lost his home. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his dignity. He lost his decency. He lost his clothes. He ran around in naked shame. He lost his self-control. He lost his right mind. He was like a wild animal, screaming and and trying to harm himself and anyone else who, who got near him. Actually, he was even worse than an animal because no animal that I know of tries to harm itself. And no animal I know of uh, wants to live among dead carcasses. He lost, this man lost all purpose for living. It tells us in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, that Satan is a roaring lion, seeking, you know, stalking about seeking whom he may devour and destroy. And he is very active in our world today. And watch out because he is trying to destroy our young people. Please pray every single day. A prayer should, should never end before you pray, Lord, keep them from evil. Put a hedge of protection around our young people. In our churches, in your families, just protect our young people because they're slipping into this one by one, well, hundreds by hundreds. It's really, it really is scary. And I am so afraid for our next generation. And I think of my grandchildren. I am so frightened for them. And that's why I pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly, please. Sin steals away all the joy from a person. It steals away their their hope and their love and their purpose, their peace, fellowship, decency, integrity, self-control. All the things that Christ wants to give us in the abundant life. Satan and sin can only offer us chains and bondage, misery, blindness, nakedness, shame, separation, and purposelessness. Isn't it amazing how many people, though, want to go that way instead of the other way with the abundant life? 
The Bible says that the wicked are like the troubled sea and that there is no peace unto them. And that is such a perfect example to follow on the heels of the troubled sea through which, you know, the disciples had just come. Just as they had found their peace in Jesus, the captain of their ship, this demoniac is going to find his peace in Christ, the great physician of his soul, his body, mind, and his soul, and his spirit. (laughs) The second force, so that's the force of Satan at work in this world. The second force at work in the world is society, our fellow man. Was society able to do anything to help this man, this demoniac? Not at all. All that society was able to do was unsuccessfully attempt to bind him in chains and fetters and put a guard on him so that he wouldn't enter into their town. About all that society could do for this man and the other one, and about all society can do still yet today, is isolate such humanly incurables. Then, back then, they put such people out out of the town and they constrained them with chains. Today, what would we do? We would neatly tuck them away somewhere in a mental institution where they would be pumped up with all kinds of tranquilizers and drugs. Those who have real serious and dangerous problems related to sin and Satan are put where? In prisons, you know, and rightfully so. They're taken out of the way and they're placed into state prisons where they can do less harm to others. Of course, they're usually not held there long enough, are they? They let them go and they are repeat offenders. But that's another story. And, of course, these restraints are necessary to protect innocent people. But the basic truth of the matter is that in the case of such incurables as the demoniac, society can do nothing more, really, than isolate them. And this talks, too, about the debt of sin. Speaking of another demon of sin that starts with a D, the debt of sin on society. Does it cost society to have people like this? Yes, it does. Listen to what, um, again, Mr. Butler says about this. Sin is expensive. In our text, we can see that 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 fact in the chains and fetters used to bind the demons but which they destroyed society went to considerable expense to try and control these demoniacs but to no avail likewise governments have spent great sums of money to build prisons crime is indeed costly to society politicians boast of spending more money to put more policemen on the street but we note they do not boast of changing the criminal from a bad guy to a good guy All they can do is spend more and more money on chains and fetters and prison bars. And all that does is emphasize the debt that sin brings upon society. So Satan destroys and society disassociates. So if it were not for a third force at work in this world, and that force is really a person, all men would eventually be destroyed and eternally incarcerated and then cemeterized and that third force of course is who jesus christ he alone was able to deliver the demoniac from his nightmare of satanic tortuous possession he alone is able to save you and he alone is able to save me um, from life in the tombs of death and hopelessness 
and eternal imprisonment in the abyss or the lake of fire and separation from God forever and ever. So when the demoniac saw Jesus approach, it says from afar, he ran to him and it says that he worshipped him. Now, it gets a little confusing here. I don't know personally if the man saw him and the man, rather than the demons, wanted to run to Jesus. Maybe, I'm just speculating, so don't hold me to this, but maybe up there on the mountaintop near the tombs, he saw the storm hit the sea. And maybe he saw Jesus stand up in the boat and say something in an instant calm. So maybe it was the man seeking Jesus for his deliverance. And then the demons take over and start talking in his place. So I I don't really know. But the word worship actually means that he fell prostrate at his feet. Demons do not worship Jesus. They do not worship him in love and willingly, although they do fear and they tremble before him. And they are subject to him. Well, we do know that the demons used the voice of this man to say... What have I to do with thee? That speaks, of course, the disdain of sin. They have no respect for Jesus at all here. What have I to do with thee? And Matthew, I think, was the one who said, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Now, their confession here, they knew who he was. Their confession only further condemns them. They did know exactly who he was. They go on, they say, I adjure thee. That's the disrespect of sin. They're commanding him. They say, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. The demand of sin. Let me read one more thing from Mr. Butler where he says, talks about the demand of sin. They said, you know, I adjure thee, don't torment me. <clears throat> this attitude, which is not want evil punished, is certainly prominent in our society today. Few think we ought to punish sin. The leniency of the courts with criminals, the opposition to capital punishment, the laws telling us we must respect homosexuals, the abortionist murderers and gambling casinos, the psychologists telling us we cannot spank our children, and the protesting of any church discipline is all the language which which says we should not punish sin. But unless sin is punished, There will not be peace and blessing for mankind. Society will be plagued by crime if criminals are not duly punished. Allowing homosexuals, abortionists, and gambling to have a free ride only corrupts and imperils society. Not spanking children produces juvenile delinquents. And I say amen to that. And if church discipline is not practiced, our churches will be too corrupted to do anything positive for the cause of Jesus Christ. It's respect of sin and the demand of sin. They immediately recognized Jesus, who he was, as the second person of the Godhead. Their spirits, and they recognized Jesus' spirit. After all, they had been with him, hadn't they? in eternity past, before the foundation of the world was made. They knew intuitively, even if they had never seen his physical body before, they knew that they were in the very presence of God. And they also recognized his authority over them them as their judge. They know, the demons know, that there is an appointed time when they will be judged and punished with eternal damnation in the abyss or the lake of fire. They actually, you know, ask him not to send them before the time, before their time, into the abyss. 
Actually, we could say that the the demons believe more accurately than most religious people today. And sadly, they even believe more accurately than a lot of professing Christians today. They know who Jesus is. They know that he is indeed the son of God. And they believe in hell, don't they? They believe in hell. Both of these things even cause them to tremble, we're told in James 2.19, which is more than many people do, many even professing Christians. They tremble, and the reason they tremble is because their belief does not involve acceptance and submission, and they know full well what the consequence of rejecting God and his son is. They have a dread of sin. They fear judgment. They know the destiny of sin. What is the destiny of sin? The lake of fire, the eternal lake of fire. Now, notice that the demons also believe in the power of prayer, which is amazing because they ask Jesus not to send them into the abyss of torment before their time. Now, isn't that a hypocritical demand that they're making? It's a, it's a prayer demand. They're asking not to be tormented before their time. And they, what were they doing? <laughs> they were tormenting the men they indwelt. So they were pleading not to be tormented themselves so that they could continue <laughs> their own torment of men. What a hypocritical demand. The demons begged Jesus. This is the first prayer request here. That, um, they, and he, he met this first prayer request. He answered it. They begged him to permit them to enter into the swine that were feeding uh, uh, nearby. One of the accounts, I think, says it's not too close by, but they could see them on another mountaintop or something. They said, let us go over into that herd of swine over there. And he he, uh, gave them permission to do that. Now, demons, you know, do not have bodies of their own. They are spirit beings. They best manifest their evil nature through living bodies. And they are extremely restless spirits. As we find, you know, remember we found this out in the parable of the empty house. uh, Because they're always seeking some living body to occupy. They best manifest their evil when they possess a living body. Whether a person or an animal. Most of the time, persons. This is characteristic of all evil. Evil causes restlessness in fallen spirits and in man. And it is only temporarily satisfied when it can express itself. Unclean spirits express themselves through the bodies that they occupy. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit who comes to indwell believers, when we ask Jesus Christ to save us and come into our hearts, we receive the Holy Spirit. And what does he give us? Rest. Remember when Jesus said, you know, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. The Holy Spirit now only comes into those who invite him, and he does not take possession of and personality from a person. He doesn't come in unless he's invited, and he doesn't take away our personality like a demon tries to do. And this is really good news. A true child of God can never, ever be demon-possessed. Aren't you glad for that? Because the Holy Spirit will not be housed together with an unclean spirit 
will not be unequally yoked together in the same tabernacle, the same temple. Those who through Christ have received the Holy Spirit, therefore, can never be possessed by a demon, although we can be oppressed by demons externally. They can oppress us from the outside, but they cannot possess us. Anyway, these demons asked Jesus to send them into the herd of swine rather than into bondage in the abyss. And he consented to this request. He did it with just one word. He said, go. You can read that in Matthew 8, 32, the power of Christ. Now, we'd just seen that in the storm, hadn't we? Peace be still. And now he says to some 6,000, perhaps, demons, go. And instantly, they leave the man. And they went where? Into the pigs, causing the pigs to behave as wildly as the man had. Actually, I think the pigs, the pigs wouldn't put up with what the men had put up with. They said, this, this is no good, we, and they just would rather just end it all. So they, it says they violently, there was a stampede, and it ended with 2,000 of these pigs going over the slopes and falling down into the Sea of Galilee below and drowning. What happened to the demons? I don't know. Because they didn't drown. You know, they can't, they're, they're eternal. So they, but the pigs wouldn't put up with it, and the demons went on to somewhere else. Of course, you can imagine that the critics... And the liberals love this passage because they can destroy, um, and the animal lovers, they can criticize Jesus' right to destroy personal property here and living creatures. They accuse him of being totally unethical, allowing 2,000 pigs to drown. So we need to consider this because we don't want Jesus to be unethical, do we? All right, for one thing, we, we need to remember what the critics forget, and that is that Jesus himself is the creator of all things and all animals, all people. Therefore, by right of creation, everything belongs to him. Nobody really owns anything at all on this earth. It all belongs to him. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't he? And pigs on thousands of hills as well. None of us came into this world with anything in our possession, and none of us will leave this world with anything in our possession. Those pigs belonged to him, and he had every right to do with them what he pleased. Now, the second thing to remember is that he didn't really kill the pigs. Who did? The demons drove the pigs to their madness. The demons did that. Secondly, it's strange that these critics howl and wail about the death of these pigs as though Jesus could not possibly be God and have done such a thing. Um, And yet, did not God himself personally allow every pig in the whole world to drown, except for those few, that those two that were in the ark back at the time of the flood? Of course, the critics don't believe in the flood anyway, so... And what makes Jesus a sinner here any more than when he had all the net, the, uh, the fish jump into the nets and killed all those fish? And what about the time that God allowed the entire Egyptian army to drown in the Red Sea? Did God sin when he did that? So how does this prevent Jesus from being God? Are we finite creatures to be judge over what God does with what is his? No. The fact is that neither God the Father nor God the Son sinned. The giver of life has every prerogative, every right to take it away. 
when he wants to and how he wants to. And usually you'll find that those who criticize the Lord's action here about the pigs have no qualms whatsoever about eating scrambled eggs and bacon (laughs) or ham and cheese sandwiches (laughs) or abortions. Thirdly, the Lord permitted the demons to go into the swine to serve as proof of the fact that he had delivered the man of a great host of unclean spirits. There wouldn't have been any proof of this otherwise. This gave proof, well, I mean, other than the man would be in his right mind, but they wouldn't have known how huge was the amount of demons possessing him. So this gave proof to his disciples and to the other spectators that a miracle of great deliverance had indeed taken place. It also gave assurance to the um, man that the evil spirits had left him. Furthermore, it served as a vivid living demonstration to the people that in Satan's realm, in Satan's realm, a pig is as good as a man. This is what sin and Satan do to a man. They put him on the same level with pigs. You know, the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He gave in to sin, and where did he find himself? He found himself living in a pig pen, a hog pen. When the pigs all went over the side of the cliff down into the sea, it was a vivid illustration that the wages of sin, the end of living in the mud of this world like a pig, is what? Death. In the lake. A lake of fire. Down. But there is one other reason for why Christ allowed these demons to take possession of the swine. This area that Jesus is now in, known as the Gadarenes, because of the chief city, Gadara, was land that was originally given to the tribe, the Jewish tribe of Gad. You know, one of the 12 sons of Jacob was Gad, G-A-D. That's where the name Gadara comes from, is Gad. And it was on the east side of the Jordan River, not the west side. It was on the east side. It was on the wrong side of the Jordan River. But the, the tribe of Gad... Those people wanted it anyway, even though it wasn't God's perfect will for them to have that land. You can read all about this in Numbers 32, get the whole story. So by the time of Christ, this area had become primarily Gentile. Although there still was a heavy Jewish population, you know, some of the descendants of Gad, which consisted of those, therefore, who had stayed on the wrong side. When you start out on the wrong side and you don't repent and uh, you stay on the wrong side, uh, you end up like the um, prodigal son in the pig business. These people, these Jewish people, had absolutely no business raising pigs. The Mosaic Law, you can read in Leviticus 11, verses 7 and 8, the Mosaic Law forbade it. Pigs were considered unclean. The Jewish people were not supposed to raise pigs. And yet what they were doing was raising pigs or hogs in order to sell them for profit to the Gentiles in that land. So Jesus had as much right to destroy this unethical business going on by the Jewish people as he did to chase the money changers from the temple. Notice when word gets to the businessmen in town, 
what had happened. They, you know, the herd, the, the pig herders are the ones that saw it, and they raced into the city and told everybody that the businessmen race out to see what has happened, and then they beg Jesus to leave the area. Instead of asking him to stay, they kind of remind me of the Pharisees, instead of being all excited for the men who were relieved of this torture, like the Pharisees were never happy for anybody who got healed, here they are, instead of being re- rejoicing and asking him to stay in their area and perform other miracles for other people and, and help more incu- humanly incurable people and teach them and bless them, instead of doing that um, and falling at his feet in worship, they ask him to leave. And isn't this a picture of exactly what the world did? He came here to help all of us incurables, and what did we ask him to do? To leave. We even forced him to leave. They asked him to leave their city because they were interested, more interested in one thing, pigs. They were more interested in their pig prophets than in the Son of God. Fear and finances is what, had, what drove, what caused them to, and this is prayer request number two, by the way, and Jesus granted it, just like he granted the prayer request of the demons to go into the pigs, and now here he grants the request of those who uh, had been, at at the beginning they had been afraid of the demoniacs, and now they were afraid of the healer. They were afraid he might go through and destroy more evil and really ruin their prophets. Their spiritual blinders couldn't see past the pig pens and the prophets of this world. What did they worship? Mammon, not God. Jesus had done damage to their own plans and their own prophets, and they wanted nothing more than to be rid of him before he could do any more damage. What do you think if Jesus came back today? Do you think people in the world would be happy to see him? No, he would destroy their plans. They've got big plans for the stock market and and to make more money and more money and to do this, I want to do this, and I want to do that. You even hear it with young people. And it's sad, but, you know, even young people say, well, I don't want Jesus to come until I can get married and have children and... But, man, you know, unsaved man, they would be mad to see him come back. They're more interested in their pigs and their prophets down here. It's so sad, but things wouldn't be a bit different. Society considers pig prophets more important than Jesus Christ and more important than caring for their fellow man. This was unholy ingratitude. But he solved two problems with one stone, didn't he? He really solved two problems with one stone. He got rid of their their pigs, which they had no business doing, and he healed the demoniacs at the same time. But they did not want their problem with evil solved. Men don't really want their problem with evil solved because they love their evil. Did the townspeople rejoice? Now, it actually says in one of the accounts that the whole city came out. It reminds me of the woman at the well, you know, when she went and got the whole city, and they came back and got saved. But here, the whole city wants him to leave. It says the whole city wanted him to leave. They didn't rejoice for this demoniac. You know, doing good does not mean that you will get a good reception. (laughs) He didn't get a good... You remember when he healed the withered hand in the synagogue? He didn't get a good reception for that. It says the Pharisees went out to counsel how they would kill him. When When he raised Lazarus from the dead, did he get a good reception for that? Not at all. It says they plotted how they would kill him and Lazarus. Amazing. 
Doing good does not mean you will get a good reception. So they didn't rejoice for this demoniac who was now sitting peacefully at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed and in his right mind. I mean, that's, do you know what kind of torment that man had to have been in? I cannot imagine the nightmare. And it said for a long time, the nightmare he had been going through. And here he was at rest and learning at the feet of Jesus. And were they happy for him? Not one single bit. They didn't care that he was a new creature in Christ. All they cared for was their pigs and their prophets. So Jesus gave them their prayer request and he left. It's a sad day when Jesus leaves men to their pig pens. But this was their choice. He will give them what they want. He never forces himself upon anyone. If you don't want God in your life, guess what? He will oblige you. But you'd say, well, what a wasted trip. You know, all that trip across the lake and that storm and everything, you know, when he was absolutely exhausted and and the disciples had to be absolutely, I can't imagine what was keeping them, well, the adrenaline from all of this for one thing, but what was keeping them awake. Um, they went through all that and they weren't at their destination very long at all only long enough to deliver one man, two men, from demonic possession, and now they have to make the trip all the way back over again. Why, Lord? You know, the disciples might have thought, why, are you sure all this was worth it? Well, the answer is, of course, he thought it was worth it. It was well worth it. For even one soul, he would have stepped across the stars into this world to die. For even one lost sheep from a flock of 99, he would sacrifice his life. For even one human life, he would do battle with all the storms that Satan could unleash upon him. To Jesus Christ, the healing of both the mind and the soul of this one or two former incurables was well worth a tiring round-trip voyage. Isn't that what he did for you and I? Didn't he make a round-trip voyage down here to save you and I? He sure did. But there's more to the story than this. Although Jesus would have gone the distance and the trouble to save one lost soul, this one man or these two men, which he did, he proved, and he did do it, there's more to his plan than just the saving of this one or two human souls. The humanly incurable man whom Satan had attempted to destroy and from whom society had disassociated was completely and immediately delivered and transformed by the great physician. We see him uh, sitting, quiet, not loud, shrieking, croaking noises anymore, not cutting himself. And now he's in his right mind. He's clothed. He has reverence for Jesus. He's sitting at his feet. And we find that his only desire, after his whole town tells Jesus to get out of here, we don't want you, he follows Jesus down the slope to the shore Jesus gets in the boat, and his only desire is that he wants to go with Jesus. Prayer request number three. Please, Jesus, let me go with you. I want to be with you. But this is the only prayer request Jesus didn't answer with a yes. The Lord had a different, and this is, you know, interesting, because he, he did answer the prayer request of the other two, of the demons and the people. But the, And remember this. 
when he saved you, you know, it'd be nice to say, Jesus, take me with you. I don't want to stay down here anymore (laughs) among all these pig profiteers. Take me with you. But he says, no, I have a different plan for you. You need to stay. You need to be my witness. This wasn't a rebuke. It was an assignment. He answered the man's prayer request with a different plan. He said, no, you're not going to go with me. I want you to go to your own, back to your own house, be a witness to those in your own family. I want you to go to your friends. I want to go, you to go to your city, and I want you to tell them about the transforming work of me, of Jesus, and of my compassion, my mercy. The scripture tells us that not only did the man witness of Christ had done for him in his house and throughout his whole city, but it tells us uh, that he went throughout all Decapolis, which is a Greek word meaning the ten cities, ten cities of Decapolis. It was a big Gentile area spreading the news about Jesus. This man, therefore, this, this uh, what do we call him? The crude, rude, lewd, dude in the nude was renewed. He was big time renewed, and he became the first recorded witness to the Gentiles of Decapolis. Big area. Jesus had to leave, but the man remained And he bore witness, faithful witness of his Savior. You know, the devil may have succeeded in getting Jesus out of the area, but he did not get the message about Jesus out of the area. One of the ten cities of Decapolis was a city named named Damascus. And it's interesting to think about Saul of Tarsus, who was on his way to Damascus to do what? to persecute and destroy Christians in Damascus? Who was the Gentile to the, who was the apostle to the Gentiles? Paul. But he hadn't become Paul yet. He hadn't been a witness to the Gentiles up there in Damascus. That, that part of his ministry hadn't begun yet. So how were there Christians already in Damascus? Well, guess what? I think that it was because of this former demoniac. It says he published the great things that Jesus had done for him throughout all of Decapolis. And Damascus was part of Decapolis. Isn't that exciting? I just get chills when I think about that. Oh, so anyway, let's uh, thank you for your patience. We didn't do too bad. We, we closed on time. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time here this morning. Thank you for the wonderful freedoms we still enjoy in this country to come together for the sole purpose of studying your amazing, incredible word and all the truths about your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit have the wonderful promise and, and truth that we can Uh, We need not ever fear possession by the satanic forces of this world because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Thank you, Father, that you have not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Thank you, Father, that you have removed the nakedness of our sin and you have clothed us in your righteousness. 
But Father, may we use our sound mind and the power to resist this outward external temptations of this world and the spiritual oppression of the devil so that we will so that he will flee from us. May we ever remember, Lord, to pray to keep us and our younger generation, our children, from the evil one. And may we yield fully to the Holy Spirit instead so that we are not only indwelt by him, but that we are filled with him and that our cups are overflowing with such joy and thanksgiving that we cannot help but share with all of those in our own Decapolis all the great works and mercies of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician in whose name we do pray. Amen.